doing today? Oh, come on. Come on. How are you doing today? Thank you. I need a little bit of life here this morning. I know it's raining, but geez, come on. We, uh, we were out at Mount Rushmore last weekend. You ever do like a 12-hour drive in one shot with three kids? Um, they actually did amazing with it. And, and it's cool. There's something about trips like that where there's forced conversation time. You know what I mean? And it's really cool because I think in the flurry of life, it's easy to go from like 10-second episode to 10-second episode with your family. And conversation often never really gets deeper than the to-do list or, or the agenda of the day. You know what I mean, guys, out here on this? It was great, if for no other reason, just having some of that forced together time. And um, it's cool that in times like that, questions start to flow, don't they? Guys, that's a little bit of a window into what we're doing here today. Some of you are veterans to this. Some of you are brand new. Today begins a three-week run that we're doing called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. I want to preface it with something. It's one of our, our core beliefs here at Fellowship of Faith, and I want you to take a moment to read this, okay? In large part, this is generating what we're about to open up. My experience across the board has been So many people walk around with spiritual questions. Questions about God, something they've heard from a friend, uh, maybe about the Bible, the Christian faith, theology, uh, how it pertains to life, how it intersects, all of this kind of stuff. I, I meet so many people, I think all of us actually have questions. And I think all of us at some point in our lives are afraid to ask them. We're afraid to ask them maybe because we think we're going to be judged. Or we're afraid to ask them because we're, we're, we're very unsure of the answer we might get. And we're holding on by a thread. And if that answer isn't just, show, just so, it's like, will this shatter my faith? I know some people that are afraid to ask it because they're embarrassed. I'm going to do this. How many here have been Christians for at least 20 years? Okay. Christians for at least 20 years, and there's a question in your mind, I bet, that you go, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I should know the answer to that. And so you carry it with you for another 20 years because you're afraid to ask. Guys, as a church, I think Christ calls us to be real. To be real about who we are and the questions we have. To be sincere about the things that we're struggling with and thinking about and wrestling with. And if we can't come together as a body, and embrace those together. Let's close the doors right now. Amen? Because that's what church is supposed to be about. So here is what I want you to do. Do you have your phone? If you have a phone or an iPad, I want you to take it out right now. Okay? Take it out right now. Make sure that sucker is fired up. And what I'd like you to do is think of those questions you have. And what I'd like you to do is text those questions to this number right here, 815-314-0363. Here's how it works. In a moment, your questions are going to come streaming into here. Here's the good news. I don't know your name, okay? This is completely anonymous. Text in any question you have on God, theology, the Bible, fellowship of faith, its intersection with life. And guys, what I am going to do is is my, my best job to answer them right here on the spot, and um, we'll take it from there. So it is now in your hands.
All right, question off the bat. Can you, explain the, can you explain sanctification? And to read the question literally, explain the crap out of it, please. <laughs> sanctification is God getting the crap out of you, okay? It is God taking you and making you Christ-like. This is a journey. It is different than something that in Christian theology is often called justification, Justification is about getting you right with God. If you want to think about it this way, it's about standing before a judge. And, and standing before the judge with a list of crimes, waiting to hear his verdict, guilty or not guilty. Justification is the idea that in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us, God looks at you and says, not guilty. But here's the question. Can a judge say not guilty even though you truly are? Of course he can. It happens all the time, doesn't it? This is is the reality for each and every one of you here. If you put your faith in Christ, God looks at you and says not guilty even though you are. And sanctification is then the process of God's spirit coming into your life to bring you into the reality of that not guilty status. Does that make sense? It's to bring you into that place where you you look like Christ, you talk like Christ, you act like Christ, you think like Christ, you feel like Christ, you're motivated like Christ, so that when people see you walking around, they go, look, there's a little Christ, which is what Christian means. Does that make sense? Hopefully that was enough crap explained out of it, and uh, we can... Move on from there. As always, with questions, if a question generates another, text it in. Will Satan still exist when we are in the Garden of Eden? Okay, couple of things we have to do on this. The Garden of Eden is gone. So the Garden of Eden, as you think about it, in Genesis 1, is not going to exist in the same way again. What God did or, or, or orchestrated or began in the Garden of Eden was something that was always supposed to grow beyond its borders. So when you come to Revelation 21 and 22, you get images of the Garden of Eden, but it's like Garden of Eden on steroids. It's Garden of Eden surrounding the entire globe. It's Garden of Eden worldwide. So it grows beyond the nugget or the germ that God began with. So our destiny is not the Garden of Eden, but what the Garden of Eden was always supposed to become. Make sense? Now, will Satan still exist? Yes. Will he exist in that, if I can use the metaphor, garden on steroids? No. You get this idea throughout the Bible that souls just don't disappear. That in some way they are eternal. And what you get at the picture of the end of Revelation is is, is Satan being cast into what is called basically the lake of fire. Don't want to move there, but it's cheap real estate, all right? Satan is cast into the lake of fire, and that's where he is going to spend eternity. And basically what it is, what hell is, guys, is um, like supermax prison for angels. It's a place where God is locking them up to keep them from terrorizing or destroying his perfect creation again. Okay? Great question. Get a little wind there. Bring me down, all right? Thanks. Uh, Next one. 
Who decided on what books went into the Bible? Who decided on what books went into the Bible? I did. Great question. Let's keep going. <laughs> you know, this is a bit of a tricky one to answer because it's a little bit more complex than people are willing to accept. You'll hear stories that the official canon, if you will, or the books that we have, were, were kind of formally approved at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and 387 BC, or maybe even a little bit thereafter. And it brings with it a sense that, oh my gosh, what did people believe for the first 300 years? What did people put their faith in? It was all undecided and there was a power play by the church and it just keeps the conspiracy theory flows, Right? Even though there are church councils that decided things formally at one point, it doesn't mean the essence of it didn't exist beforehand. One of the earliest things that you see in church history where this question came up, it was called the, quote, Muratorian Canon, if you want to impress your friends and neighbors. And here's basically what it revolved around. There was this bishop, this guy, this Christian, his name was Marcion, and he said this, the God of the Old Testament that can't be the same God as the God of the New Testament. This God in the Old Testament, he's like violent and wrathful and vindictive. And then we see Jesus who's forgiving and gentle and loving. It can't be the same God. So I know what I'll do. I'll cut out the entire Old Testament. We don't believe in the Old Testament. Not only that, I, I, I'm not going to accept any book that has an Old Testament theme in it. So Matthew... You're gone. Hebrews, you're gone. Chunks of the Gospels, get them out of here. Parts of the epistles even, ditch them. And it caused the church as early as like 140 AD to have to wrestle seriously with these questions. And here's what it revealed. The church, pretty much universally, had been putting their faith in certain agreed-upon books before this time is God's living inspired word. And those books are basically the ones that got the rubber stamp 200 years later. So from the days of the very early church, it really wasn't someone going, that should be and that shouldn't. It was the collective church at large going, you know, we remember Jesus. You know, my grandpa, he used to walk with them. That's how close in time we are. This conforms to Jesus' teaching. This is what he was about. This is what Paul actually said. And the spirit working through that codified it in a way that you just can't mastermind in this world. And that's more or less how it got decided. I know that for this sake, that's kind of a short, quick-ish answer. But keep asking on that if you've got more. Next one. Do you think Jesus could have been married to Mary Magdalene? Sure he could have. I don't think there's really any evidence for it. Is marriage a sin? All right, so what's the problem, right? Is Jesus human? Does that mean he can love people? Does that mean he can be, want to be married to someone? Does that mean all of that can happen and that's a good and God-pleasing thing? So, of course, he could have been married to Mary Magdalene or 18 other people we don't know, right? But it doesn't say that. So to speculate that, well, I guess it's kind of fun, but to put any kind of like stock in it, to put any kind of uh, weight into it, to, to put any kind of sense that this is probably the case, um, I, I think you're on really thin ice there. Because there's a lot of times where it should have mentioned a wife and it doesn't. 
They'll mention the wives of the other apostles, but not Jesus, not Paul. Paul will even use it as an example that Jesus, you know, implicitly wasn't married. So probably not despite what the Da Vinci Code told you. Does the death penalty contradict Christian doctrine? Does the death penalty contradict Christian doctrine? Maybe. And here's why I have to answer it that way. In theory, the death penalty is something you see in the Old Testament. Contrary to popular belief, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. It's not that. It's thou shalt not murder. And while killing is not a good thing, there is a difference between killing and murder. And you will see throughout the scriptures, both old and new, that there is provision given in circumstances that God never wanted to exist to begin with for the taking of human life. Otherwise, how could God send Israel into war? Right? But how is the death penalty carried out? Who is it carried out on? Under what circumstances? Just because something is theoretically okay doesn't mean that the process by which it's enacted or enabled is okay. And the question you have to ask yourself as a Christian is, if I'm living in a state or a nation that allows the death penalty, is it, be do is it being done with justice? Is it being done out of revenge or out of safety for others? Is it being done with compassion or by every cruel means necessary? Is there still a respect for life? And within that, Christians have, have, have debated whether it should exist at all. But theoretically, to answer your question, no, it does not theoretically contradict Christian doctrine. Good one. Okay, so where are the books they weren't kept in the Bible placed? Were they... Uh, you kind of trailed off there on your text. So, okay, where are the books that weren't kept in the Bible placed? I, uh, libraries, um, homes, temples, um, government archives. Where do you keep the books that aren't in your Bible? There's this idea I think people have of the ancient world that the Bible is the only book that was ever written, or that the Bible was the only book ever written by religious Christian or Jewish people. Man, you know, they had Zondervan back then too. You know what I'm saying? They wrote in troves. And, and you can read all of these other books called like the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha and the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus and Philo, just to name some of the major players on the scene. These were all God-fearing Jews um, that were writing in the stream of Christian doctrine, much like a, uh, a John Ortberg or a Craig Groeschel or a, a Martin Luther or a John Calvin might write on Christian theology today. Does that make sense? If you want to read some of these, um, here's a challenge I just put out to a, a bunch of people here at FOF last week. We just finished up this 38-week Old Testament narrative reading plan, right? As some of you have been doing this. And the question is, where do we go in the summer? I suggested three books. First Maccabees, Second Maccabees, and Tobit. Three books that you'll find in the Apocrypha. It's some of these extra-biblical writings that give great insight into what life was like between the Old and the New Testament. Check them out. You can go to BibleGateway.com if you're cheap and just pull out the RSV version and you'll see them right there. All right? Great one. 